Welcome to Writers Talking, the podcast where we take writers and readers behind the scenes, sharing the stories within the stories. No scripts, no filters, and no holds barred as we talk about what really happens for writers as they write, edit, publish, and promote their work. Hi, I'm Anjanette Fennell, agent, editor, and writerly mentor who's worked with hundreds of writers to break through their creative challenges to uncover the stories they feel compelled to share. Now, let's get talking. Zoe Coyle has over 20 years' experience in the corporate sector, creating and delivering workshops and facilitating people from all walks of life, from CEOs through to creatives and the homeless. She has taught within the NIDA corporate team, that's National Institute for Dramatic Arts, and was a leading facilitator at Message Train, which specialized in high-level pitching and communication skills. She's taught acting at the Actors Centre Australia and in the UK at the Hampstead Players and the City Academy. In 2020, she signed a two-book deal with Ultimo Press with her first fiction novel, Where the Light Gets In, released in Australia and in the UK in 2022, and her second novel, The Dangers of Female Provocation, was released in May 2023 in Australia, with its UK publication set for early 2024. She is the mother of four children and has a wire-haired dachshund named Solace. Zoe is an experienced film and theatre actor with career highlighting spanning Australia and the UK. Zoe graduated from NIDA in 1998 with a Bachelor of Performing Arts. After graduation, she featured in a range of Australian, American and British productions. Zoe founded her company, Pilot Light, in 2008. Since then, she has worked with numerous companies and individuals to unleash self-awareness. She is a fully accredited Dare to Lead facilitator and was chosen as one of 400 facilitators from 17,000 applicants globally to be trained by Dr. Brene Brown in Texas in 2019. I just wanted to start with saying, number one, as I shared with you before we recorded, I absolutely adore this book. I am not afraid of being challenged in reading. And so potentially it's not for everyone, but rather than maybe the way that it's being marketed, I actually looked at some of the other relationships. And because I've not yet read your first novel, I went to just read the synopsis for it. And I noticed that There are other themes that came up for me, having read this one, that are probably primary. So for me, and the people who listen to this vehicle or this podcast are used to me talking about things like a vehicle in a story, right? You can choose lots of different vehicles to get from start to the end. And I can see that feminism and that sort of idea of not revenge, but re-educating, which is a word that's used throughout your book re-educating men is part of it, but that's just the vehicle to deliver a message. But what I noticed, and I was really curious about, was it intentional to examine the relationships that your protagonists have with their parents? In the first book, I recognize it was primarily mother and that mothers in this one too, in fact, more than one mother figure, but also father and the nuances and how those relationships actually affect how we move forward. I know that's probably a pretty <laughs> surprising way to start this conversation. No, I love but it. I'm really curious about how did that, was that intentional? I assume it was. Yeah. And then how did that come about? The first one was uh, coming back to potentially healing or at least getting to a place of resolution with the mother-daughter relationship. And this one is similar, but different and a little bit broader in scope because we're talking about both parents. So, well, the, the first book is also about both parents. Okay. I- I am endlessly fascinated in our family of origin. So whoever that is for you, mother and father, father and father, father and mother, whatever it is, whatever the, I, I, so as I've got older, as I've done my own work as a human being and also being the mother to four babies myself. So the the reading that I've done about parenting, trying to sort myself out in response to my own childhood, which was loving in parts and terrible in others. And so I'm endlessly fascinated by how we are created in the fires of that family of origin. 
and that the people around me who really inspire me and I think have great wisdom have done work around reconciling the truth of that and the complexity of that. And not that they live in the past and not that it's about um, directing blame towards their parents, but just really looking at uh, what was their life like and their birth order and how has that created the, the, the adult that they are. And then I went because I wanted to be a better parent and because I was having a complicated relationship with my dad, I went to something called the Hoffman process. Have you heard of that? I haven't. It's incredible. So I went to the Hoffman process in my early thirties and it's a week long residential. It's global, but it's also here in Australia. And the, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful experience, intervention, but basically it looks at what did you do to garner love in your childhood? What patterns did that create in your life and how those patterns are playing out now? Which sounds sort of airy-fairy, but actually it is not for the faint-hearted. And for me, it's not hyperbole to say it was absolutely life-enhancing. It felt like um, somebody had said, Zoe, things might be a little clearer if we take that hood off your head. Here, let me take that hood off your head for you. Yes. So yes, I'm endlessly fascinated in those first loves and how they inform who we are. It sort of struck me. And by the way, on this podcast, you can talk about all of those things. What some, and I'll use that term as well, airy fairy or woo woo, but my belief and those who listen are used to me talking about things that I think are actually psychologically based, but that I think there is very little difference between those things that we think of as, as psychology and spirituality and science. There's a great overlap at the very least. Um, so it's completely agree. And look, I, I used to, oh, sorry, you go ahead. No, that's okay. Tell me. Well, I used to I used to have some level of pride about my atheism. And then I mm. recognized it was just fear and armor. And the older I get, the more spiritual I am. And and so I I you know that that idea of using that language, that softening language around woo-woo or woke, I don't love those. I use those hopefully as a kind of Trojan horse where I can put in ideas inside and send them across the front line. So I think I think it's deeply exciting that actually science is now like like the say our capacity to understand mirror neurons know from that that your joy is so meaningful that it lights up my brain the same way as if it were my own joy that's what spiritual teachers have been telling us for eternity I find deeply edifying yes and I guess I really love that you talk about that too and I do that as well to soften it so that people can compartmentalize if they need to but it's the same way that I think fiction is actually a very powerful truth teller. And it's like a window opener, right? Rather than being, and not to say that nonfiction is like this, because I enjoy memoir and I enjoy other, but storytelling in and of itself, especially fiction, can be a beautiful way to send in, as you said, like a Trojan horse. But really what it is, is it's a a way to circumnavigate that conscious mind that says, I don't believe that, and instead introduce ideas that if they were given head on in a lecture, that somebody may be able to easily fend off, right, with the armor of past beliefs or familial beliefs or religious tradition and dogma and all of that. And instead, if we present it in fiction, then maybe they'll open their eyes and they can see. It's the way that we connect with others just as we talk as well, don't we? We do a better job when we tell a story, usually from our own experience, and then that invites the other person in rather than pounding them over the head with a mallet yeah. saying, yeah. believe that. Absolutely. Oh, I love that adage that, um, you know, when, when with public speaking, so I used to teach people how to public speak or help them towards that. And, and the, the adage was, you know, people won't remember what you told them, but they'll remember the way you made them feel. Yeah. And I think that, I think that that's an interesting idea to think about with with novels, isn't it? Because it's not as confronting as being told something at a dinner table. I mean, the older I get, the more I love being dazzled by what I don't know and the mystery. Yeah. But I think, you know, when we're afraid or when there's trauma or when we're tired, we want to hold to, I just don't believe that. You know, my cynicism was, you know, my first line of defense for many, many years. And, Mm. you know, like like righteous outrage, they're the tin victors, aren't they? I mean, they feel good, but they just keep you in a small, dark cave. Mm. Mm. But that goes back to what you were talking about with the Hoffman, was it the Hoffman process? Yeah. Yeah. Really looking at those things, look, my background 
my degrees in psychology too. So it shouldn't be surprising that I find all of this interesting. And in past episode with Matthew Quick, we were talking a lot about Jungian analysis. Uh, and I love learning what he had learned from analysis so far and shares actually in, in his work. But it is that process of rather than just creating that armor, looking in and getting insight like you, I was going to say most people, I would think, especially when they have children, start to even more consciously examine that parent-child relationship and stop worrying about judgment or blame because that's not what it's about, but it's about understanding. So the way that I explore that with writers as well is I'm a big one for taking any sort of, they're not necessarily assessment tests, but indicator types. So Myers-Briggs, or even if you do uh, like human design or Enneagram or whatever floats your boat. And Here's some will. Characters, for yeah. Sure. Yep. So I just think that my approach is always take what works for you. If it feels like it's helping you grow and expand and release the rest, the mm -hmm. whole point being, how can you stop struggling and how can you surrender? You have a beautiful part. I don't even think, I mean, I started tagging, but then I was going to tag all of the things in your book, by the way. <laughs> and for listeners, I was showing a copy, my copy of her book. And I don't usually, quote unquote, deface, like underline, but I was really, really tempted to. But it would have been a lot because this book is so meticulously, beautifully written that I was amazed. But also some of these concepts of both, you had a conversation in there about standing up and fighting, but also surrender. Can you talk a little bit about that, like where that came from for you and why you were sharing it in the story? I think surrender is one of my life lessons, certainly mm -hmm. in my 40s, that idea, you know, that beautiful Buddhist adage that suffering is not accepting what is. Mm. And that has a lot to teach me. <laughs> I'm going to have to spend my a lot of time on my knees with that teaching. Yeah. But this idea of surrender, I really started thinking about it when um, I read the book Letting Go. Have you ever read that book? I it's really know. beautiful. And yeah. it's, it's it's a remarkable book. But just that it just the as the title indicates, that idea of what what do we hold on to and what do we let go of? And for me, I used to, and I still do, you know, I'm still remedying this space. I, I I hold on to things that I cannot control, that I can't alter the outcome of, and so and that just make me miserable. Mm. So this idea of surrender, so you so you you hope for the best, you prepare for the best, uh, you do your work and turn up in the world um, with as much integrity and courage as you can. And then there's this immense grace and wisdom, which I once again say with humility that I certainly don't always achieve, where you then surrender. And it seems to me that, that, that the people that I meet that are really bold and um, egoless and delicious, there is an element of surrender in them where they're just mm. not, tamp they're not tampering. And I know with myself, when I feel panicked, when I'm overwhelmed, overwrought, it's when I start to do the opposite of surrender, sort of my yes. holding tightly and my internal voice goes crazy. And so I think there's immense wisdom to be had there. Well, it's that white knuckle gripping. I don't think it's an accident that this, the traditional story arc that Joseph Campbell talked about, that's an important part. So with anything that I share with writers, I'm not a big one for saying be a, a hyper plotter versus a pantser. And we'll maybe I'll ask you how you <laughs> approach your writing. But even for those who are generally pantsers, I would recommend at least going through five points that they have at the ready so that you're never sitting down saying, I have absolutely no idea where I'm going. And that idea of surrender comes right before the final battle. I'm always using movie uh, examples. I can't help it. <laughs> but almost all of the big ones, you can watch it. And I'm a, a story geek as well. So I kind of like enjoying movies on multiple levels where I'm just in it but also where I get to notice where they were using that and that idea of surrender being that almost penultimate point to their transformation. Mm -hmm. And you can't fake it. So you can't say, oh, I'm, I'm surrendering, I'm surrendering and not really be surrendering because you're still so attached to the outcome, but it comes when you have surrendered. So I will ask you, when you were writing this book, is it the same way that you approached your first novel? W was it different? And how did you 
actually, did you sit down? Are you a big plotter? What is that uh, like for you? It, it was look, it was different. I mean, I, I I work full time and I've got four babies, as I said. So I, I wish that I had you know a room of one's own with a stream and um and and a fire crackling with 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 books on on three walls. Uh, you can see I've thought it through <laughs> extensively. But look, I snatch time. I I I love to write in my bed, so uh, lying down. But then and then I'll try and carve out times chunks where a friend of mine who's a writer, Bridget Delaney, talked about um, in an article that I read years ago where she said, if you can step out of your life so that your life can recede and the life of the novel can come in. I find that very true. So I was lucky enough with this novel. I was an essential worker down in Tasmania and I had to go into quarantine. And I went into quarantine, didn't need to go into a hotel, could rent a B&B, Airbnb. And so uh, I had two weeks entirely on my own, couldn't leave the house and hired a treadmill. And so it was phenomenal for me how actually if you're given the luxury of time and space, the revelation was that deep thought is really an extraordinary gift to be able to drop in. So in that time, I didn't drink any alcohol. I would get up, I would meditate, I would write all day until about six, then I would run for a couple of hours on the treadmill, start again. And and I wrote 30,000 words pretty much in that in that time and and it almost remained completely intact in the novel. So that's, and then there are other times which I rewrite and rewrite, but I, I like you, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by story. I'm a story nerd too. I love an arc. I want to see, I want to read and I want to see, and I want to hear characters that go on a journey. For example, I love the film Tar, but when I, when I felt my interpretation was, oh, we're dealing with a narcissist and there was no movement from that place. I fell right out of the back of the film. Yes. You know, what I want to see is characters that are that are that are huge and I want to see good characters and bad characters and good characters that do bad things and vice yes. versa like the nuance but I want to see that they are they're, they're moving forwards but they're also being knocked sideways because that is what is so fascinating about being a human being and so for me yes I do plot and with novel one it was my first novel so I was I was fledgling and it was messy and complicated and then novel two I had had a gift, which was um, I'd finished novel one, didn't have any publishing deal. And then I was standing at a barbecue and this man who actually I don't particularly like, uh, but I owe him a debt now. He said, uh, what did you, what did you do this morning? And I said, well, actually I finished my novel to the best of my ability. And he said, I'll draft one. And I said, no, draft three or four. I think that's as far as I can go on my own. And then he said, and and you're starting your second one today. And I said, I, I, I'm not. It is my intention to drink a lot of tequila and dance. <laughs> And cry. And he said, you should start straight away. He said, just if you are, you know, to be creatively alive, just give yourself a break for today and start tomorrow. And, and I went out for a run the next morning and, and I said, so here you go. Here's the spiritual gloriousness. I said, to the ether, to whatever it is, I said, okay, I'm open for the next story. If you send it through to me, I'll be listening. And um, I don't know if you've read Big Magic by Liz. Of course. Yes. I stopped running about 20 minutes later and went, I got the central idea for the book in in whole. And I thought, I must have seen that somewhere. I must have read that somewhere. How could that story not have been done? And then my job was just to try and find enough time and to make sure that I came away from cliche because I wanted to explore the worst things we can do in marriage, but without um, having having it be too cliche or too much of a feminist rant. But it was an absolute first one. I uh, it was painful to write. This one was delight relish is the word I think Mm. where I take hands off the keyboard and think, can I can I write that? (laughs) You know what? I can having I can't do the comparison yet, but I can see how that happens. And and having literally devoured it, I mean, I told you before, I do a lot of reading, and so it's a pleasure when I get to read something that's for the podcast or something like a book that's already on the shelf. And I'd only barely gotten a start, and I read almost the entire thing in a 10 hour period having, you know, with interruptions because that's life with kids and family and, and all sorts of things. So I can't say I sat there and I just read it, but I pretty much just read the whole darn thing. And it has those moments, especially for women who are used to either consciously or unconsciously suppressing their feelings 
of inequity, right? I think that we can recognize them, but then if we don't feel we have voice to do it or it will blow up our whole world, and you definitely play with the fantasy of it, but you also have these other characters who are grounded, both those, I love the that three or four, like if I get pulled into a, a story in real time, I just think we're, we're working, we're moving around together. They are full characters that you see. And I love it because it is very much away from the cliche, which would be if he does this, he does that. And what she's expecting him to do isn't that. So the number of times you have your protagonist having the course correct, or, you know, she steals herself and and covers in her own, we, I think we all have our armor on. And so a Brene Brown quote being, you know, that surrender as well as where we lay down our armor, that is when we finally have potential to transform. Yes. Um, and like you, I absolutely loathe the stories where I cannot see how they've changed. So if they end a story without me seeing a change, I feel ripped off. So well, I just, I- well nourished because yes. I want to learn. I want to learn, and and but for that we as writers have to avoid the trope and the cliche, which is so difficult. I mean, I felt like I was skirting along clifftops quite a lot here, yes. and the subversion of you know I, I didn't want women good, man bad because I don't believe that, and I yeah. I don't believe in any binarization actually, um, but. Uh, well, do I? Is that true? No, I do actually. I mean, I do. I do have there. There are moral codes which I think is, you know, um, terrible. For example, the the way Odessa chooses to behave that those are not behaviors that I would sanction. You know, but that poor woman, she needs therapeutic support. Yes, you know, that's what she needs. But her life has been set up in such a way, and the armor that she's put on is that yeah. she doesn't know how to choose that for herself, yeah. and so. She acts out. And what I know of my own life is that when I am acting from a place of reactivity, very seldom is it good or beautiful behavior or generous. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm, I'm super interested in that as a writer and as a human being. Well, and I think it's a better reflection of the place we can go in our lives as well, rather than staying. So I don't have a problem with tropes, but I do have a problem with cliche. So it's, uh, this is even like way, not way out there, but Esther Perel talking about in relationship. And I think he is some others that I won't mention because I don't necessarily support them as wholeheartedly will say things like we need a balance of not routine, but uh, things that we can guess how they're going to happen. We have that human need, just like children do. Right. Mm-hmm. So that gives us a sense of safety and we need things that feel new and exciting as well. We need that balance, not one or the other. And I think that you've done this beautiful job of actually creating a, a protagonist who I felt very sympathetic to her because I could see how she was again suppressing all of these things. If anything, it just drove me crazy because I thought, share, I lived in the UK two different times for differing time periods. And I thought, and having lived in other countries as well, I don't know if you've ever lived in the US, but we've got all of these English speaking countries, right? And everyone has slightly different personality. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I resonate with here in Australia is that by and large, and again, generalizations, individuals are different, but it's a little bit more, we're just going to lay it out there for you, which doesn't make it easy when there are behaviors and actions that are, I don't know, not those that I can support because they don't face those, but everything else is out there. In the UK, it took me longer to make friends with people because everything was done just so, and I was learning new, I, I guess, ways of interacting in that world that were different from where I'd grown up. However, I ju- my heart broke for her because of the things that one of the other characters spends her entire time helping her to break down. Mm-hmm. That was one of, that was a page I cried on. I cried and With I Cynthia? marked off. What's that? Yes, With it was Cynthia. Cynthia. And I just thought you have brought in one of the most generous, heart-led, intelligent and, and balanced characters oh, that so glad you see that. I've ever I seen. I had an interview with a man and he said, he referred to Cynthia as that idiot character. And I was so... Read the whole thing. I don't I know. 
so offended because you are, I love her. I love her so much. And she is heart-led and she's so courageous and she's so honest and generous. And even she tolerates, accepts a love that isn't full enough for her. But she's awake to the reasons why she's made that decision. And uh, we all make compromises. And I I love, I love, I also, which you probably pick up from the I love the relationships between women, friendships. Yeah. I, I feel my life would be deeply impoverished without my sisterhood. But I set the novel very, very consciously in the UK. And as you so eloquently say, generalization, it's a blunt tool. But I don't think Odessa would exist in Australia because someone would just throw an arm around her and say, what's going on? Tell me. Tell me. Yes. Yes. But, you know, in England, I found and, you know, I've I've lived there extensively and I have family there. When my mother died, for example, some of my closest friends would just say, you know, I'm terribly sorry. And that would be it. Yeah. That would be it. I felt so alone with my grief and it felt unseemly to say my heart is breaking and I don't know how to draw breath. Just that that mask of stiff upper lip. And mm. so I put her there to, I mean, obviously she has perfectionistic traits and, and has control impulses, but I thought that plus trauma, even in Australia, I think someone would grab you by the cheeks and look you straight in the eyes and go, I know something's going on, you have to tell me. But yeah. I think think possibly my experience of living in the UK is you could be very, very alone there. Because nobody seems to want to be the one to say something. So it's very hard to break out of that shell. And that's not to say that in the US, there aren't also these rules like going from work colleagues to like, there's these unspoken rules, and you don't know them all. But I had that same feeling. And that's why it really rang true for me, because I have the benefit of having lived in these three different countries that share a language and yet the way it's used it is vastly different. And you're right, there's just like a no BS sort of thing here, unless that's what you're doing on purpose in Australia, right? Like you play at all of these different things and yet you can break through it more easily. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, apologies to anybody who's who's had differing experiences because we can all have those. But for me, from a character point of view, and I'm deeply offended by what that other reviewer said. I think, yeah, like I see these people as people that, that I would know. And I thought you were really smart to have Cynthia be who she was. And then that sort of leads me to a question that I might ask, but because we needed somebody to actually show why she wasn't a villain in the story, which when you've got this situation when wills are being read and somebody unexpected is there, and I thought the solicitor was like standard, awkward. <laughs> British. Little bit of Dickens. I yes. do find I always get this little bit of Dickens moment, the sort of fingers like twigs and so on. I mean, yeah. that's the beautiful thing about literature, isn't it? Where you can put two characters in proximity to each other and and then and both can be reflected in a illuminated in a new light. And I was very interested in so if if Odessa is this cast herself as this avenging warrior for her sisterhood, and then this incredibly soft, beautiful, loving woman comes in who is non-judgmental is actually a deeply spiritual character but but she's not in her head she doesn't have all that language yeah. and just loves Odessa without judgment but also gives her really good advice because mm. I think Odessa has not been given good advice and many of us aren't at our times of greatest trouble. So I think that thing of, you know, tell the hardest truth first. It's such a simple thing to say, but it actually is, that's something I say to my children and wish I'd known as a child. Mm. And uh, that idea of motivation, would, is it absolving if you think you're doing something for good? And really, Cynthia, she surprised me because I thought Cynthia would say, yes, if, you, if, if, you're, if you're trying to do the right thing, then yes, that absolves. But, but you know, as a writer, sometimes your characters just, and here's that, that spiritual landscape, they just, they talk for themselves. Yes. And she says, no, no, it doesn't. It's not mitigating because nobody thinks they're doing something for, for, to harm. So it's not actually mitigating. You, you, um, you need to stay and in accountability. And, and you know, I think that that's pretty wild and, and and very female. I'm very interested in that. Of course, once again, generalization, but that idea of rather than in uh, passing the buck with blame or rage, what is it just to hold space and say, this is on me. This is mine. I created this. It's on me. I guess I just appreciate the story that you've written from both that story 
Nard part because of course Cynthia would be the the wise woman coming in and saying these things. I love too that she was also a fully formed character that you gave these little notes. So even in their first meeting that we got to see that she's expressing this, but we know that internally she's feeling nervous, you know, noticing different glasses in different places and or having that nervous energy and getting up. And and I guess that just drew me in more. So I have a feeling I know the answer. But so you were just saying with Cynthia, too, that sometimes our characters just say what they say, they can surprise us. Did she come to you as that person? Or were you learning about her as you were writing? So I fell more and more in love with her as I wrote, mm. or as she wrote. I, because, so I, I don't think this is a spoiler to say she's in, for your listeners, she's in a long-term relationship with a married man who yeah. she is not married to. And look, if you'd asked me in my 20s, I would have just been scathing about mm. that. And so it was so fascinating to write a character who I fell in love with, who had made the decision to be be a part of of a deceit like that and that it was an exploration of a true and deep love yeah but i also wanted to look at with all of that i wanted to look at the other reason it was interesting to do it in england as opposed to australia was classism that that and affluence so yes. affluence and that that cynthia is very different to odessa in all the ways and so it's possible for odessa to be looking down on her but then realizing that everything is inverted that she should be on her knees in front of this beautiful woman with her forehead then pressed to the ground so i really wanted to play with perspective taking that we all make judgments about people and things all the time, like Odessa does about Elliot at the beginning of yeah. the book. And that that actually, unless we listen and unless we open ourselves and, you know, that, that Brene thing, are vulnerable and allow ourselves to be vulnerable, we can't see another human being. We can't see their trauma or what or what they're navigating. And Cynthia, in my opinion, is heroic. She's, oh. she's brutal about her. As I said before, I'm super interested in good people that do bad things in inverted commas, because I don't think any of us are one or the other. I agree. I just, I mean, I could go on and on talking about all of the the multiple layers. I was going to talk too about that affluence because it's very clear. And I thought it was interesting that for me, the one da- the one standout character is actually somebody who's and it, and not the trite oh you know they don't have money and therefore they make it all up with love sort of thing. But number one, that you have that perspective too. Odessa comes in and and she she wasn't overly ju- judgmental for me about that. I mean, there are all, all sorts of other things. Curious, maybe, but it seems to be just this very unspoken thing as well. And that yeah. instead of having what she could have done or doing what she could have done, which is, you know, just put up more reinforcements around mm-hmm. her heart and get that's proof, you know, that all of this horrible. And she really goes into, you really dive into those things about truth versus all of the different kinds of lies, which ones are good. And it and what I love is at the end, I don't think that we get clarification, which is fine. If there's going to be an open-ended question at the end, I'd like it to be around something like that because that's around that judgment as well, right? There are all of these compromises yes. that we make. And she Odessa lays these things down and lets herself receive what she really needs. Well, I think for Odessa, the, the, the money and the power and the status is all more armor. And so mm. as she travels through the novel, it was my intention that, that she would have more and more clarity about the facade of that. Mm. Mm. And, and I wanted to explore without lecturing because, because, okay, so I go this way. So for example, I, I'm a woman and I love to wear makeup, but I, but I, but I question my makeup. And so does Odessa. We're not at all similar, but I love that she removes her makeup. Mm. And for her, she comes to, because I, I I would like to remove my makeup too, but I just find it so much fun. But the <laughs> part of me does look at that thing of, well, I've been brainwashed. That, And, you know, the fact that when I don't wear makeup, people often say to me, oh, God, you look so tired. And I think, oh. yes, because mascara is my friend. <laughs> but society prefers me when I don't look like myself, when I don't Mm. look like my natural face. So I have to own that 
I've been brainwashed. And I love that Odessa, in her courage and how far she pushes it out, that if she is to find her way out of it, she is going to have to call truth on every part of it. Yes, I hadn't noticed that. What I did notice, and this is, again, true, whether you say your editor helped you do it as well, because obviously I didn't read any other versions, but you partnered really well in that I saw those subtle it was just a one or two lines, like when she was talking to one of the husband's PAs, maybe not even his personal PA. There's a comment and we're talking about brands and fashion. And I just can now get like an extra level of appreciation because this is getting over the halfway point of the book mm -hmm. as well. And you are going through this process of constructing and then for Odessa deconstructing some of those things that she's held tight to that she's recognizing are not actually benefiting her but are separating her more but for me the ultimate in this story and maybe in your last story and in many many stories that I love and read are about reclaiming connection and Thank how you. we are keeping that barrier and they don't all look the same. Like I said, the vehicle, how you go from point A to point Z is varied. But ultimately, it's that laying down of the armor and being willing to be vulnerable, share the things that really close to the end, like she dribbles it out to specific people and she's challenged. I bet she wants to put all that armor up uh, near the end when people she has not directly told know these things and how challenging that is. But ultimately, we can't get to the place we needed to be as quickly as we'd like, because as I tell authors as well, in their writing of it, as well as what their characters are doing, naturally, after we've had that inciting incident or series of inciting incidents, and then we say, okay, yeah, I've got to change, then we go into denial. And then the next several parts are doing everything but the one thing we don't want to do. We'll try to do, we'll try to fix it any which way other than the way that feels most vulnerable to us. Sometimes we're conscious of it, but oftentimes we aren't. So even writers like you, I love this because I bet that there was a part of you that was actually working something out. And this is that part that people can think is woo-woo. But I think, great, this is the way that writers work it out. That Odessa's story is not your story. And still, there would be parts that maybe would have been more challenging. You'd have more resistance to writing. And then we, we manifest those things because they literally exist around us all the time. If you've got four kids and, and a partner or not and, and a full time job and not, you can find things to do. We can create housework and all sorts of things we have to do to avoid showing up to the page. Yeah. And oftentimes it is around the same time that our character also getting to that place where they're recognizing that all the different ways they try to quote unquote fix their problem without actually having to do the thing they want to do or don't want to do rather, they're getting to that place where they don't want to do it, but it's getting really clear. And that's right before that surrender too. Like, yeah. fine. Now, like the Bridget Jones, I always say the Bridget Jones on her sofa eating ice cream straight from the tub. Yeah. That's the surrender. Like, never mind. I thought mm -hmm. I could change it. I thought I could fix it. I can't. Mm -hmm. Do you think you had that experience? Or can you recognize any of that either with your first book or with this one? Or were I you so surrendered to your whole creative process that it was just part of the process? Yeah, it's, a, it's a great question. I mean, I think, um, I mean, like you, I, I, I'm I'm endlessly fascinated in connection, mm. how we connect better to ourselves. And so subsequently, then we can connect better with other people rather than living in subterfuge. I mean, what I would say to, you, you know, with, with a loving, gentle and humble heart to your writer listeners is if you haven't, get yourself into therapy because doing your own work is a revelation. But with with both books, I was looking at what happens to a woman who is pushed over the edge mm. and how does she come home to self? And I I particularly love, because, because my fundamental belief is that we all have to be our own hero, that nobody else can save us. So uh, that is that is true of both the books, that yes, yes, we can have angels that come in and guide us and love us, but we have to do the really hard work on our own. And that's why I I love that that the, the dark night of the soul, that part 
any story. I think that moment when your character or your characters are on their belly, on the ground, what has brought them there and what is going to get them to stand up and never be on that piece of ground again. That I find so deeply moving and heroic. And and this is why I'm so fascinated and honoured when people will tell me their stories and Mm. not that they've ended up in the book. I was very careful particularly (laughs) not to take anything from my life. I did, a dear friend of mine who's a therapist, I asked her to read the book if if it made therapeutic um, sense, um, The Ark. And she just sent me a text saying, I I hadn't realised that I'd told you that about my marriage question mark, question mark, question mark. And I just, I called her immediately and said, before you say a word, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what section in the book. You haven't, I haven't taken anything from any of my friends' marriages. So that was kind of horrifying. I've gone off topic. Um, No, but that's perfect because it is a very important thing. We do also talk on the podcast about what it's like to go out and promote and, and all of those things. And what are things that we are allowed which means anything you want to allowed to keep to ourselves and 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 deflect a question and choose to answer it differently like that's where studying politicians can maybe come in handy like they're very good at only answering the questions they want to but also letting people know that there are things relationships, circumstances, all sorts of things in your book, whether they are your friends or family, and you don't control. In fact, it can be sometimes a delightful surprise, even if just that part, like you'd said, somebody found what I wrote so believable, they thought I was relaying their story, and I have no idea what part it is. That's proof of that connection as well, right? You've put it out into the world, even in these small places with beta readers or or whatever, and they are relating. And that is another reason why I believe that we write and share is to create that. And sometimes, well, in fact, all the times we don't know what those parts are. We can only get there if like I believe you did with this story is you are as fully present as possible. And you believe all of these characters and their stories as much as possible. And then people come back to you and say, wow, that was me. For example, for people who write memoir, and they have disguised things or even actually in fiction, to say they'll have people say oh you put me in I didn't actually or I know I'm such and such a character yeah like you're absolutely not that character that too it's very odd I mean I do Mm. I do think people who write memoir I I have so much respect for them but it's because the bravery is huge and the danger um, it must require an immense sobriety and I always worry when people write memoirs very closely on the back of trauma I think god Mm. maybe if you just sit for a bit. But I know with my first book, I was asked continuously whether it was memoir. And I don't know whether that's because, or what aspects of it were memoir. I don't know whether that's because it was a debut novel or because I'm a woman. From what I understand, the statistics of both of those are higher. Also because it has a euthanasia theme and I was open about the fact that my mother took her own life. But the, but but it was fascinating for me that if you open the door a bit where I would say, and people would say, well, is it memoir? I'd say no. And if I had wanted to write a memoir, I would have, but my mother would not have wanted that. I would not have wanted that. My brothers would not. And then someone would say something like, but what were your mother's actual last words to you? Okay. <laughs> and I think right. that has nothing to do with the book. And actually it's yeah. deeply private. Yeah, uh, I, well, that's the part. That line, yeah, holding that wow. line. But, but interestingly, you know, with this book, not a single person has asked me if it's memoir. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> that's good. I just, I always think of Nikki Gemmell uh, going from writing Bridestrip Bear as anonymous, and then eventually it comes out. Here's what most writers probably understand is that there are going to be pieces that could be, and I won't say memoir, but there will be pieces of you in it. But I, again, I'll go over to Jung. It's like dream analysis. All of the pieces are parts of you, and then they are expanded. And then the magic comes, and I've worked writers through this process as well, that ability to differentiate and give that over and recognize that it's like a friend that you may have, that you've got all of these things that are similar, but then they are separate to you. And Mm -hmm. then you've given them all these things. And it's also that magic, that alchemical part where 
they start sharing with you or they surprise you. So even those who do a lot of plotting, I had an interview recently where she was talking about, in fact, she has just as much, if not more of those magical moments now that she's become a plotter, Mm -hmm. those moments where the character surprise her or she learned something new. And again, there is that aspect of surrender, but Mm -hmm. we shouldn't be afraid of writing things and having people think, because again, we do not control that. So it's Mm -hmm. that attachment to, or the the releasing, the letting go of that white knuckle grip on how people will respond to your work. Yeah. Um, yeah, we enjoy that. it sometimes, or like you've expressed in our chat too, sometimes where it's like, did you read what yeah. I wrote? Because it feels like you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I, love, I love Charlotte Wood talks about self-respecting work. That mm. that's, that's our job, just do the self-respecting work. And I think one of the revelations for me with this novel was particularly the end, because I, I if I didn't land the plane, the whole thing was going to be a disaster. Mm. And, and without writing any spoilers, I, I wrote it very differently. And I just had to sit with the fact that even though I wanted the ending to, so for example, I I overwrote it. I overwrote the ending. So I spelt everything out and I realized with the help of Nadine Davidoff, my editor, she never said, this is bad. This is not right. She just would nudge beautifully towards the Mm. less is more, less is more at this place. You've done all the work to this point. So now don't condescend to your writer. Read it. Let, let them go. And they will. And if they need to read that section twice, they will, but particularly with an epilogue, because for me, I just wanted to sort of say to the, the reader, you know, thank you so much. I'm going to spell it all out, you know, which <laughs> I think like punching them in the head, but just a lightness of touch with that. But it, it took me, so I, I wrote it and it was finished and then realizing, actually, I need to rewrite that. And then, and then being terrified, but feeling but my characters have told me and I've just written it out. And then literally going back in and saying, you know, it sounds insane, but saying, okay, my friends, I'm back. And can I have another version, please? And I, I felt shy and embarrassed to ask them. And then they, they just, they did it again. <laughs> so I mean, it's just, it's so spooky and fantastic and wonderful. And then at the end, I said, I think it's better. And I, I literally had this sensation of all going, it is, you've grown up. Oh, this is what I live for. Actually, hearing stories like that as well. And again, I think for anyone who isn't creative, and I I won't say I believe that anybody is not creative, maybe they just haven't expressed it, or they're not comfortable with it, or whatever we create in different ways. But certainly for writers, that experience, even if you're looking back at, say, uh, papers you wrote at school, there can be a distance. And it's because something happens. And by the way, I believe that we are a different person today than we were maybe when you wrote the first draft of your first book or even things prior to that. It is, and again, I'll just say it again, the surrender part and being open to saying, because I believe that you're talking to the characters who are a part of your higher self. Ultimately, the the story is what we want to honor. And a writer can sometimes have to overwrite at the beginning. And so if I'm working with a writer, I, I really don't worry about that. Similar to your editor, though, if we're looking at words on a weekly basis, they need accountability to get the writing done. I will not point out perceived problems, but I will highlight the places that they've done really well. And generally for me, there's an energetic connection. I can feel them in those words rather, and that's a heart-centered thing rather than a head-centered thing. I'm positive there are plenty and people have heard me bang on about this endlessly, but I'm going to keep doing it. Writing from an intellectual standpoint doesn't mean you're using beautiful words and all of that. It's a disconnect. It's like I'm writing from a very intellectual place, which all of the words may be correct, but somehow for me, they're not quite as fulfilling. But if there's connection between that intellect and then ultimately the heart, you're on to a good thing. In a first draft, expect that you are going to write things that never need to go in the next one, because I think Stephen King says in On Writing, you know, that first draft is for you. You go in the room, you shut the door, even if that's not literally what you're doing. You're not writing it for anybody else. You're still telling yourself the story. And in fact, most people have to edit those first three or more chapters more than they do at the end, because also 
you're generally a better writer at the end. And that's not to say that you won't want to change what you've done. What what you described is sort of like what we talk about if it's that Scooby-Doo moment, like the villain breaking down how they how they did all the things or in movies, they might have a montage showing you all the places. And I won't say I hate that, but it's not always right. But you as the writer needed to get it all out to be able to see clearly what are those things, what are those strings you want to pluck on the instrument to really resonate? Because when the reader closes the book, all writers have a an ultimate message or feeling. What mm-hmm. is the reader going to know, feel, or think? Again, you don't control it, but you hope. Mm-hmm. If they read the whole thing, mm-hmm. which some of those people haven't, I would put money on it and I don't gamble. They'll, they'll go away with that thought. So even with an epilogue. And also sometimes the characters have just one last thing that they want to show right before the reader goes and it's not a hollywood ending like tie everything up with a bow but it's more like we were talking about earlier that feeling of having gotten the whole story so now i feel satisfied this transformation has happened i love a good structure and this one it it turned out and i love balance but so there's a there's a prologue there's an epilogue and there are 20 chapters and that i found very pleasing but the cynthia cynthia just insisted on on food because there's not a lot of food in the book and I love food but because because Odessa is malnourished in yes. lots of food. so yes. there's booze but there's not really food so I did I did love it that Cynthia absolutely insisted on there being a full roast at the end yeah. I kept trying to write that I was like okay Cynthia it's in you get it <laughs> yes yeah. yes I love it well because she starts that way but you're absolutely right and it's funny too I mean the themes again it would be interesting to find out from a first draft to a, a final draft were these intentional or were they sort of organic that they just gone in but you've got other characters eating mm. Yeah, you know, true. scooping up hummus and hot pita, like, and again, having lived in London as well, and imagining some. I didn't go to all the nicest restaurants, <laughs> but going to some of those places and knowing what it feels like to move around in some of the suburbs that that you were talking about, and seeing them, the others were there and were full, although. That could come back and haunt them now that I'm thinking about the character that was doing that. And then to look at, you know, when when we have trauma, so Odessa finds out her husband is having an affair and her father dies. What happens to our soul, our spirit, but also what happens to our body if we're Mm. we're not nourishing it, if no one is holding it, if no one is holding our hand, if if we are not bathing to comfort ourselves, but bathing to scold ourselves and drinking alcohol to benumb and numb and running to exhaust. What happens in that space? So I wanted to push it as far as possible. Also, from a technical perspective, I wanted to make her behavior as believable as possible. So I needed to push her as far as I possibly could because someone well-fed, well-rested, well-behaved, well Uh, in her center, well-balanced, wouldn't make those behavioral choices unless they were a sociopath narcissist. And frankly, curling back, I'm not really interested in in digesting stories about narcissists because nothing altered. Mm. So that's where that was. And and I am very interested in food and booze and clothes and dogs and love and sex. I mean, someone said to me about the book, oh, there's there's lots of ugly sex in the book. And I thought, well... (laughs) <laughs> what? Uh, because for me, the the sex is just like the eating or the running or the yeah, it's yeah, designed yeah. to tell us something about our characters, yeah. and you know the, the, them rolling around in a big sex scene that's meaningless is I have no interest. I, you know, go to pornography for that, and I have zero interest in that. But I thought that was interesting. What are you looking to the work for titillation or to understand your characters, the characters better? That's what fascinates yeah. me. Wow. Well, because it was very focused on those interactions and relationships and what control she felt she had lost maybe over the world. And in these little parts, there were specific, again, you had small bits and I wouldn't call them titillation, but it was like they're all building. And while they're building, she's physically, she's dwindling and medicating both drugs and alcohol or whatever but also with this sense of trying to regain control. And she puts it under this umbrella of trying to re-educate and 
and teach people a lesson. And it's funny because there's part of it that's sort of satisfying, especially the first time she does it. Look, and that, I mean, I'm sure anybody's response to your work is a reflection of them. Mm -hmm. So my response to the things that I liked and appreciated or got small satisfaction from are totally a reflection of me (laughs) and the ways that, that it explored some of those things that maybe I would have a fantasy of doing, but would never be brave enough to do. But I love that you got to live that out. I mean, you showed it and I get to see your beautiful smile and this will be on audio for everybody else. Go check out, I don't know, her her Instagram feed, if you've got it or something, you can see her gorgeous smile. But you'd said early on about, ooh, you know, do I get to say this? Do I get to have the character do this? And, and yet see all of the ways that that actually crumbles. And it is, in fact, just another form of an unhealthy medication trying to make up for all the loss. I'm not addressing that. Let's push it down. There's no good time to bring it up. Mm -hmm. All of this horrendous trauma that's happening in her life. You talk about a book. If you want a book that shows the way that you ratchet up tension, especially for that protagonist who needs to transform, because while she's got everybody else is the one that needs to transform, or at least the men in her friends' lives, it's actually her. And for anybody who's a writer who wants to look at how do you do that? How do you continue to ratchet up the tension? This, I think, is a masterclass because you're not, you're not painting her as, as perfect. And yet I find her very sympathetic. So you're right. She's not just a narcissist. There are so many ways that I could see externally. Oh, she has it better than me. Or, you know, what is she? complaining about and yet I never felt that way. So that tells me that you really put heart in her or helped her reflect her heart. She just felt strangled by mm-hmm. society that was around her. And so she had these really close relationships with her girlfriends and yet all of them showed a different way of that they would express but that they would explain away right? But I'm not complaining. And that is very much a universal theme for Mm -hmm. most women that I know. Look, Me too. And I have a 14 year old and a 16 year old. And, you know, my my eldest got grabbed on the bus last year. And Mm -hmm. she's very strong and has been um, raised in a feminist household. Her dad is a feminist. And and she came home and she was so distressed. Uh, It was in daylight. And she was so distressed because she froze, which as we know, we know flight, flight, freeze, or fawn. That, but she was just. But Mama, I, I didn't, I didn't even advocate for myself. I, I just sort of squirmed. I didn't even say, "Get your hands off me." And I said, "My darling, that has happened to me and every other woman r- repeatedly." And uh, you know, the other day I collected my girl from maths tutoring. She's fourteen. She's in her school uniform, and a and a carload of men, four men, screamed out at her s- sexual abuse. And and you know, she is six foot one. But I was just. And, you know, I thought, I miss Odessa because, you know, I, because I am conditioned like most people where it's danger. I just want to minimize the danger. So instead of turning around and delivering an Odessa tirade, I bolt down, I move on, I get away, I keep my mouth shut. And then later I vent. But I loved, I loved that Odessa would take no prisoners and she would just say everything that I would want to have the capacity to say. I mean, the other day when those men heckled my 14 year old, I screamed out after them, how dare you? That was all I had in my arsenal. And then, and then just sort of looked at my daughter and gave her a cuddle. And it's it's terrible. It's just dreadful. I'm just dreadful. <laughs> just a sort of but even as I screamed it out to them, I thought, oh, my God, if they turn the car back, yeah. I'm going to have to grab my girl and say, run. You know, don't take up too much space, Zoe. But Odessa yeah. is just taking up all the space. Yeah. And, and so I hope in a way she advocates for all of us who have mm. been too afraid and that actually she does have a lot of daring there. I mean, you know, my brother, my eldest brother said to me the other day, but oh, come on, Miss Soz, you know, really? It's, haven't haven't we all moved on? It, you know, you what? don't seem to held up. And I'm like, Come, come for a walk 50 meters behind my daughters. And, and I'm not saying it's the men that are the problem. It's the system. That's the problem, yeah. you know, so that, that is a, that's what I wanted to look at, but in, but I'm so gratified that you found it a page turner, because for me, I, I thought about that a lot. And it was, if this isn't driving it forwards, it has to come out. So that kill little darlings, I just, yeah. unless it's, and 
because I wanted it to be like a whip crack. And mm. and so how I would do that was I would I would plot beats. I would go, I wanted to get here. And then I would say, so you've got seven scenes maximum to get her there. And if I haven't achieved it, I either re- need to rewrite that beat or need to rewrite all of that going there. So I just wow. tried to keep it as taut as possible. And then I would go and then I would say, and I read this somewhere in some book was at the beginning of the beat uh, to the next beat, there has to be a yes, no question that is answered either emphatically yes or no. The, the reader won't know what it is, but it, but it would be, you know, something like is Odessa going to take Sarah's husband to bed? Mm. Or actually the, the beat was, will, will Odessa take her, Sarah's husband to bed? And the next beat was, Yes, she got him into bed. And then the next one. So that's how I would drive it forward to keep it as taut. Wow. So that's that's how I managed it. Well, you did it. You did it. Unlike our conversation, because we can keep talking. This may go down as the longest conversation, but I'm <laughs> I'm super happy. Thank you so much, Zoe, for coming on and talking about your process and your book. I would love to have you on again. I've got some ideas for a panel. Uh, to have you on to to talk again about your writing and like I said, your process and what goes on for you. And maybe next time we can get a little bit about what you might start next, because I have a feeling now you've got in that thing. I've finished a book. I've started a book. So we'll talk about that next time. But thank you so much for chatting. Pleasure to meet you, glorious woman. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Writers Talking. Join us next time for more Writers in Conversation as we delve into the writer's process, their passions, and a little bit about their books. Don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast player and follow us on Instagram at writers underscore talking underscore podcast.